This podcast is part of the How We Are Network. For information on this episode and many other like-minded shows, visit howweare.org. That's H-O-W-W-E-A-R-E dot O-R-G. and welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. Thank you for joining us. I am your host, Ray Harkins. And let's talk about last episode. Holy crap, so many of you downloaded that. La Dispute, and more specifically, Jordan, the singer, is quite a popular chap on the internet. He got a lot of retweets and reblogs and all of that other good stuff. So yes, if you are a new listener, thank you for joining. Keep joining. It'll be fun. It's a nice little ride. For those of us who have been here since episode one, which is like me, um, you know, it's been fun. So, well, welcome. Continue along. The guest this week is Mr. Joe Morrow from the early November. He also played a little bit in Hello Goodbye and uh, a bunch of other bands, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But uh, more on him in a minute. Let's get some biz out of the way. Let's talk Property of Zach. I got to hang out with Zach, like, last week, and it was fun. He came through on tour, and he's just a good guy. And I like him, and you should check out his site. It's got a bunch of great writing, a lot of good interviews recently. Like I'm not I'm not a big guy on text interviews because you know I'm I'm old and I don't need to read what's happening with this band's new record and how it's their best thing ever, but they they ask more specific questions which elicits more interesting responses which is great so check that site out visit the show's website 100 wordspodcast dot com email the show 100 wordspodcast at gmail dot com I've been trading some emails with a lot of new listeners and I'm 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 happy about that. And if you are feeling ever so generous, go to the iTunes store, drop some stars, tell us how awesome the show is or how terrible it is, how this person should never be on. I've also been getting a lot of interesting guest ideas from people. People texting me. <laughs> like longtime friends are like, "Hey, you should have someone on for this. It's awesome." Like it just I don't know, it makes me feel well not only connected to all of you, but that you're engaged, that this is something that you look forward to. And that, I mean, oh, that's a that's a heavy feeling for me and it's awesome. So, and yeah, this is episode 101. It, it keeps going. And I'm so stoked because there's so many awesome guests that I have to bring you. Listen to the end of the show. I'll tease a few. And a previous guest of this podcast, I appeared on his podcast. That's kind of what you do. You know, if you do a podcast for a long period of time or even a short period of time, you just all kind of support one another. It's kind of like us playing shows together. That's That's the equivalent now. It's as opposed to Hey, do you want to play a show? It's like, hey, do you want to come on my podcast? So Matt Pryor from the Get Up Kids, he was, uh, I don't know, a few episodes ago, and he asked me to be on his podcast. And for those of you that did not check it out, I would encourage you to do so. Go visit ntwha.com and you will find the episode on his website. I had a lot of fun. It was a uh, you know, very long chat. I talked about a lot of stuff in my life that uh, you know I typically don't talk about, which is exactly the point of a podcast. Anyways, let's talk about Joe. Joe, it, it, this felt like just slipping into a nice robe with a nice cup of coffee and just kind of hanging out. Like I've felt this kinship towards Joe for for a while because um, I don't know. It's one of those things. I just uh, you'll, I'll tell the story, and so I won't spoil it. But he's just always felt very familiar to me, and like not in a creepy sense, but just a, an easy guy to hang out with. But yet we have so much in common, and I don't know, there's a lot of good stuff. But Joe tells a lot of stories about the early November's formation and just how unprepared they were as a band, which was honestly news to me. I mean, I knew that their ascent to the public eye was definitely quick, but hearing his early tour stories are just unbelievable. So listen and stick around after the show because I'll, I'll drop you some tidbits of who's coming up so let's talk to joe and do you know this reason i hope that you can see it because i will not give up and we all know what you've done again i can see right through you you're making your way over again so like because i mean i know that Obviously, since we've known each other, you've mentioned that, you know, we met years and years and years and years ago mm -hmm. when we played in New Jersey. But those those times are obviously lost on on the youth 
Um, but I mean, I remember reconnecting with you at uh, our mutual friend Martin. He had a party, and mm-hmm. I remember yeah. I remember meeting you there. And it was one of those things where it was like there was, uh, and this is the beauty of independent music, where like there's such a shorthand between you and I, where it's like I feel like we've been friends for 15 years, even though we haven't. We've literally never hung out with one another. But there's just that weird closeness, and I don't know. I mean, I don't generally feel that for everybody, but there's something. I don't know. You're you're very warm, Joe. Thank you. Uh, well, I I don't think I've ever been described as warm, but uh, I'll, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's just because of the we all share this, whether you know how far people are into it or um, even kind of regardless of maybe genre. It's like it, it, the kind of umbrella of DIY culture. It's like that's like a link that. I think in uh no matter where you go, you find somebody who's sort of part of that and you at least have something some pretty serious common ground to start a friendship or any sort of relationship with. So yeah, that I remember that show quite well. It was at the Rotunda in Philly where I where, where I met you. Yeah. Or not officially met you, but I bought a t- I bought a taken t shirt and you sold it to me. And maybe the C D, but I'm not sure. But I know I bought I bought a shirt. I probably marked that shirt down in a notebook somewhere, and I still uh, – in going through my old stuff, I still have the merch totals from past tours. It's like, dude, what am I keeping this for? You know, it's funny. I'm just kind of uh, – I'm just trying to find that event online right now just to see just – to just to put my head like in that space to kind of remember it a little bit better, but I don't remember – who it was with, to be honest. I don't remember what tour that was. Well, if it, if it was at the Rotunda in <clears throat> Philly, it was probably uh, – we had to be playing with This Day Forward. Um, mm-hmm. We Because, yeah, I think that was the only time we played there. Uh, I think uh, Burnt by the Sun played that show. If, I, I don't know about that. Um, I think that was actually a, a show, too, where it was my first experience with, like, the East Coast violence as far mm-hmm. as, like, the, 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 the pit <laughs> – on the East Coast is so much different than the pit of what we experience in the West Coast. And I remember being punched in the face just just because I was watching a band and kids were violently dancing. Yeah, well, one of my favorites, uh, same venue, um, Rotunda. I went to go see The Promise Ring. Okay. And uh, forget who opened, I think like Camden or somebody opened that one. And Promise Ring were my favorite band growing up. Like super stoked for this show. And there's a fight that breaks out at The Promise Ring show. And like The Promise Ring aren't, no. A tough band. But Philadelphia would just latch on to any band if they had some sort of association with punk rock or hardcore and just fight at their shows. And the Davey from The Promise Ring jumps off stage, tries to break it up. He gets punched in the face. The drummer jumps off and punches the guy who punched Davey in the face, who turned, who I turned out knowing. I know the guy who started the whole thing just because everybody just sort of knew each other, whether you liked him or not. Right. <laughs> That's the way Philadelphia was for a long time. It's not that violent anymore, at least not that I've noticed. But right, that <laughs> that time was a sketchy time, dude. That's <laughs> I mean I shouldn't laugh at someone getting punched, but I can't imagine Davey throwing and or receiving a punch. I think he was there to kind of like just breaking it up and just as a just there just got popped in the face. <laughs> oh, poor guy. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was so mad. I remember just being like, yeah, you messed my favorite band set up. Just so mad. So mad. Um, so, so describe, you were, you were born on the East coast, right? Like in, in the Jersey area. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so describe to me. Yeah. Describe to me your, your upbringing and where you were born and all that stuff. Okay. So I was um, born in a town called Washington Township, New Jersey, which is, which is probably about 25, 30 like minutes or whatever from where I grew up. I grew up in a town called Hamilton, New Jersey, which is um, known as the blueberry capital of the world, but it's not really. That's a lie. Maybe it was at some point, but it's not anymore. It's like uh, now it's probably like somewhere in Central America. I think they stole it. (laughs) Sure. Um, But it is certainly not the blueberry capital anymore, but they still call it that because Ronald Reagan came to our town in the early 80s and called it that. And he was, you know, it was as like a cornerstone town of, American commerce, you know, and just, so it it was, um, it's a farm town. I grew up more or less on a farm. Uh, my father owned a, well, his family owns an orchard, you know, a peach orchard and they would just, we're not farmers. They would just rent it out. But, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the upbringing was just part of that super rural, um, nothing to do kind of, uh, like kind of rednecky. I guess like sure there's elements of that yeah like lots of you know you're in you're in New Jersey you're only a few 
miles from Atlantic City or Philadelphia, but from where we were, it was just like, you may as well have been in, you know, Wyoming or something just because of how, like culturally, it just didn't make any sense from where we lived compared to other parts of that part, that state, really. It was just very rural and uh, not the not a breeding uh, place for punk rock, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, yeah, no. uh, <laughs> not, well, I, I imagine not a breeding place for anything that you would consider a quote-unquote counterculture. Nah, not at all. Um, so do you, do you have brothers and sisters? I did. I had an older sister. I, I have an older sister. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was, she was pretty cool growing up. Um, she was like super into like the Smashing Pumpkins and like my so-called life and like sort of this angsty stuff that just kind of helped me get into it. So she would, you know, we would watch MTV like everyone else and I'd watch the state and all these shows and oh. uh, whatever else was on that time. And um, just sort of a, she did help, I guess, shape what I was going to get into, mm-hmm. which was nice. And then I kind of went from there. She gave, she gave you the tools to know that like, you, you didn't know how to express it, but you were just like, I identify with this, this weird stuff. Yeah, I was probably in like middle school and um and she was, you know, a couple years older than me, but so she would hang out with some of the kids that I thought were like different and weird, like the few kids, like literally the few kids. My my school in high school at least, I had 150 kids in my graduating class. There oh. was probably probably 500 kids total in the entire school. That's small. Yeah, so we're, you know, we're talking we've got a very small pool of people in general. So, you know, just number wise, you bill it down, you've probably got about five kids who were into anything that was sort of counterculture. Right. And uh, she was sort of friends with the older ones. And I was, and I would say, oh, those guys look cool. You know, I wonder what they're into. <laughs> right. So, so did you, did you, uh, as far as, cause I, I'm always intrigued by the, the quote unquote farm life. I mean, I've only had a little sampling of it in my life as far as, uh, just being in like really rural areas. My stepfather, mm-hmm. my stepfather was born in a place called Farmington, Illinois, and I spent a lot of time there and it was like, you know, population of like about 2000 people. So it's, uh, anybody that doesn't have that experience, it's like, I feel sorry for them because it's like, you gotta have, you gotta know how that, that side lives in order to yeah. put yourself in that world of like, Oh yeah. Like it's, it's a whole, a more holistic perspective. There's a big part of me that like loves it when I go back to not like I, you know, it's not even that far from where I live now, but when I just, it's just a different world. So I live in Cherry Hill, New Jersey now, which is like the Manhattan of Southern New Jersey. So my, my father will be like, I don't know how you live up there with all that traffic. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, like you have to drive 30 minutes to get to Target. Like <laughs> there's two within like eye shot of where I live. Like there it's, you know, it's not that big of a deal, but I go down to my dad's like, <clears throat> like during the summer or whatever, and just kind of, I'll help, you know, I'll take an old bike around and just be like, this is pretty nice, mm-hmm. but I got to get out of here. Like after a couple hours. Right. <clears throat> And it's not even like I live in the city or anything. It's just like there's nothing to do. But it is a valuable part of like growing up I thought was great. You could do anything and you can get into trouble and no one would know just because there's so much space to kind of be a kid, you know, and just skateboard and which was also kind of weird. But I was super into skateboarding, you know, most of my teens. And um, you can just, you know, there's just warehouses that you could essentially break into and own because no one was using it and you can just build a little mini skate park in there and use it until someone found out and then you would go somewhere else and just kind of pick your own territory yeah like you could it was the town was is not massive but it's pretty big and there's just a lot of space to do whatever you wanted and that was cool as a kid to be to not have like anybody on your back you'd get in trouble the kid the cops would not like wouldn't know what to do with skateboarders and they would sometimes be aggressive but overall it was a uh, pretty cool place to live Mm-hmm. But then also kind of challenging as you got older. Right, right. And did your did your mom basically take care of you and your sister or did she work? Yeah, my mom started working probably when I was like 11 or so. She became like, got into real estate. Um, oh. She actually got a job, I think, with BMG on the distro side. I'm not sure how, but or like from a company that was like a third party of like BMG. So she would have all these cassette tapes that were like damaged and just give them to me. So that was always kind of cool. They were most of the time they were awful, but 
every once in a while there'd be a, there'd be a good one in there. <laughs> That's amazing. So is it, was it one of those, like you get, um, you know, like 10 tapes for a dollar or something like that? Was no, it-, it was, she would go to like the, um, she was like a rep for the store. So she would go to Kmart's. And, oh, got it. Yeah. Sure. So yeah. So, and, and they would just have whatever was damaged from the, um, like the shipment. And they would say, we can't take these, send these back or just trash them, you know? And she'd say, oh, I'll take them, give them my son or whatever. Um, and my father was a, is a dump truck driver still is. So oh, very, uh, yeah. So he would, you know, this is blue collar stuff where I, where I live. People always, uh, you know, if you're, if you're looking at, at, at jobs that people uh, typically go like, oh, well, at least I don't work at McDonald's or whatever. Or at least I'm not a garbage man. Like how, did, did that ever, was that ever said to you or it's like, oh, your dad's a dump truck driver. Like, you know, cause there's that, there's that weirdness. That, that town, it was like, everyone did something in like agriculture, like farming, like somebody's, and this is a, this town is very wealthy. It still is. And, but the people you would never know, you would see some guy who owns one of the biggest, or if not the biggest, like blueberry farm slash exporter in the entire country. Right. Mm-hmm. But you would see this guy picking up his kids at school in some beat up 1980s, you know, F-150. Just the way people were, like are around that town. Like there's a lot of money. I don't know if it's true, but there was once a report saying in America or maybe New Jersey, it's the most millionaires per square mile in that town. Wow. We weren't by, by any means. We did like we were definitely like middle class for New Jersey, for that area. But, uh-huh. you know, like my it's uh, I don't know if that's a true uh, statistic, but <laughs> right, that's right. what I always heard growing up. And you could, you you know, it's it's pretty obvious when you'd see some of these people's houses um, that they're wealthy, but you would never really know. You know, they weren't living a wealthy person's lifestyle aside from having like a pretty big farmhouse. Right, right. They weren't, yeah, they weren't, uh, you know, uh, flashy about it as, yeah. as obviously so, you see everywhere else. Like, I don't know, like I would grow up in you know, I would meet other people from other towns whose parents were like software developers and they made, you know, they had, they were wealthy from the early days of the dot-com boom and whatever. And I would be like, that's not even, that's a foreign land, can, you know, from where I grew up. Like nobody was involved in that stuff. If you had money in that, in my town, it was because you were like a foreman or a contractor or something. Yeah. You made, so it, you made it with your hands. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a lot of respect for, I have a respect for anybody getting up and doing any job, as long as you do it with pride and like get, you know, you do it, but I have a lot of respect for like my dad, who's just like he's at now. He's born in 1945. He's like 69 or so, but who still does this stuff every yeah, day? He's doing it, man. Yeah, he learned how to fix and like pretty much build diesel engines just from them breaking all the time. He has he dropped out of school when he was probably 16 or so. Uh-huh. You know, just like yeah, salt like, salt the earth. When people meet him, they're like, "There's no way this is your father." <laughs> Yeah, I look at I, I look at you, and you you don't uh, you, you don't scream to me. I can fix a diesel engine. Can, I can't pump my own gas barely. When I moved to California, I was like, "How do you even do this?" <laughs> I am the worst. But my dad, like specifically, kept me away from it. He was like, "I don't want you doing this. This is not what I want you to do." So I guess I'm going to blame it on him, but also thank him because I wouldn't survive in that world. Interesting. So your father, he intentionally prevent or curbed learning from that perspective because he felt like you can do something um that's i mean obviously every parent wants their child to do quote unquote better than they did but that's interesting your father took an active role in that yeah he i remember asking when i was younger just being like um i remember right out of high school i was saying like hey i needed a job and i was like is there any like jobs on the sites the construction sites like holding signs or like being like running to get like being a runner or whatever uh he's like no you i don't want you anywhere near that world like you can make those kids make good money. Like they join the union, they make good money. But like, he's like, you, I don't want you doing that stuff. Like, do what you're, what you want to do. Yeah. Don't, you know. That's interesting. That's interesting. So, so because obviously that you you lived in a pretty, um, you know, supportive environment. You, your family, uh, from what you've been telling me, obviously, you know, got along with. You know, I'm sure there's bumps in the road or what have you. Like every family mm-hmm. has. Um, so, you know, as, as you started to kind of, you know, develop your own taste as far as, you know, with, through your sister and then obviously the skateboarding and stuff like that, when did you start to feel that like, Hey, I'm really interested in this stuff. And you started to dive a little bit deeper. Probably like, you know, I just watched that one nine, nine, four documentary on YouTube about like that year when green day and offspring and like kind of popped everything wide open. Uh-huh. Um, so probably like 
then. Like, I was always super into music, but it was like the Beatles, and then it was like whatever 90s, like, uh, you know, rock. All that stuff was really important. Nirvana and Pearl Jam was really important to me, but kind of when it really connected was probably like with the Offspring Smash. That was like my big intro into what would become punk rock. And then, you know, you remember like, you know, you've seen these, the CDs and then seeing Epitaph would slide in and all the labels would slide in a little mail order card. And like, I would just go through and be like, I wonder what that is. And then I bought Punkorama One with the green and orange cover. Oh yeah. And like heard Bad Religion and who else was on there? I don't remember, but there was a, there was a, you know, all the, like total chaos, which I wasn't into, but I was like, it intrigued me, you know, like I would say right around the age of, uh, what, what are you in sixth grade? Like 12? Yeah. 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 I would say that summer, like I got, I went like head over heels for it because I was never like any good at any real sports. And then also like, just that was kind of the time when all that stuff got, you know, put in your face and like skateboarding was all of a sudden like in commercials, whether it was like cool or not, it was like, you would start seeing these things. 1994, 1995, around that time. Um, and then it just kind of, I went nuts, you know, snowballed into it and just couldn't get enough of it. Right, right. And did you, uh, so you, with the idea that you were terrible at sports, you were like, well, I guess this is kind of the, the other option to that, the flip side to that? Uh, with music? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think around, my uncle had like a guitar sitting around too, so I would just, you know, kind of play that and I, I don't know what it was that was so appealing about like punk or indie rock at the time but it was something to do with just like I didn't like what was what the other kids at school were into and I think at that time it must have been a lot of like Limp Bizkit and early like new metal or whatever mm-hmm. um and like in in rap which I uh, you know I was always okay with rap but I just wasn't that into it um, and then also just my sister knowing some kids that I, I just thought they were cool because they were different and they looked like the, they look like, they look like the people from mall rats, you know, which yeah. I, was my favorite movie. And like, no one else looked like that, but they kind of were these, you know, dirty kids <laughs> who were, you know, just into slightly different things. And so all that stuff around that time, 1995, I think, you know, mall rats comes out skateboard. I get my, uh, you know, there's a toy machine video, Welcome to Hell, that comes out. Oh, yeah. Um, 411 pops a promise ring. So, well, maybe that was a little bit later, but, you know, 411 videos are coming out. Like, everything just sort of mid-90s just went nuts, and I just went crazy for that stuff. Right. You just couldn't You couldn't put enough in your head. I, I, I find it interesting because I do think that there, uh, you know, you, you said something in regards to, like, you just saw, you saw what was out there as far as, like, what the other, your other peers were consuming, and then there was that sort of intangible feeling that you weren't identifying with it. And I, I find that it's, like, I, I really wish that it was easier to describe than that, where it's just, like, yeah, it's that thing where you just didn't, mm-hmm. you just didn't want to join up with, and it wasn't, it isn't so much of a, you know, like, screw you sort of, uh, you know, anti-authoritarian, like, I don't, I'm not part of this sort of thing, but it's just, like, uh, it doesn't it doesn't scratch that itch, you know? Yeah, I don't know what gets people interested in the things like on a pure level that just sparks something in them. I have no idea what it is. I think about it every once in a while. Um but I really don't know what it was that yeah. Yeah. told me, you know, that got me more interested in the the stuff that other people kind of weren't into yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so did you, you know, as you started to, you know, dive into, uh, you know, music as far as that was concerned and started to, you know, have bands that you felt a very close attachment to, did you have the concept that you wanted to actually play and perform in a band? Yeah, there was this band called, there was a ska band called the Havoc Tones from my town. So this is like the first punk band probably ever since the eighties that, you know, was doing something. Uh huh in that town. So my uncle had like a band and they were like eighties classic rock kind of band. And I was, I would go watch them practice just cause I liked to be around instruments and music, but I had no idea what they were playing. And he would give me Led Zeppelin records or whatever. And I just had no real interest in those, in those songs, maybe one or two songs I would like, but just wasn't into it. So eventually I, I see the ska band around town and the drummer was friends with my sister. So I would just go to their practices. They would let me, they would kind of like adopt me as like this kid that they would let hang out. And I would just go to their practices and sit there, just be around 
people playing music. I don't even remember what they, I remember what they sounded like, but I can't tell you whether or not it was good because I don't think any actual recordings were ever made. But they were starting to get like cool shows Mm -hmm. and they were booking shows in town. The first show, first punk show I ever went to, they booked and they played. And it was a pretty good one too. It was, um, this was probably around, I want to say like 96. Okay. Um, And it was uh, Less Than Jake headlining. Um, Weston was direct support. And the first of three was the local band, the Havoc Tones. Okay. So, and this was right before Losing Streak came out, I think, the Less Than Jake record. Uh-huh. And I bought a 7-inch called the Pesto 7-inch, which had the dog on the cover. And I didn't even have a record player. But, like, I was just like, whoa, this is neat. Like, this is something we used to have around the house. Like, why are these bands making these things? And, you know, I picked up my first very distro catalog and i said what is this a magazine it's just naming records you know but it had ads in it for other records and i picked up you know my first uh you know zine you know having no idea what it was and that was uh, a huge i remember that show super well like yeah it was the first one and then i saw kids jumping i crowd surfed for the first for like the first time <laughs> nice it was, as like a you know 14 year old kid or whatever that show was a was a huge one for me yeah and then uh just sort that, of that was hunting. the turning point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like once you get you're, you're like a you're like looking for drugs or whatever. Like you had to go out and find more of these shows, but they weren't hard to find when you don't have a driver's license and there's literally nothing going on within a 20 mile radius of you. Right, right. I love I love notion of what you're saying when with a, a zine and obviously like I mean the very distro catalog like I, that was the bible. You looked mm-hmm. at, you looked at that and you were just like what record? Because like I, people, you know, people that obviously have grown up with the internet and the ease of access to music, um, you know, the process gets lost on you. Blind bought records. You had no, oh, I, you had no idea what they sounded like. You would sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. But it's just like that idea of like, of hey, I'm going to spend my twenty dollars on these two these two records and hopefully they're good. And even if they're not. I'll have to kind of act like they're good just because I spent my money on it. Yeah, I think it taught you a lot of patience and a lot of like attention span exercises, which I don't think is a big thing anymore. But like I would buy a record that maybe I didn't based on the recommended if you like parts Yep. and maybe having not liking it at all or just not thinking it sounded anything like the bands they said it did and, and then sort of just sticking with it and sticking with it and finding elements you did like, and then eventually maybe you enjoy the album. Maybe eventually you enjoyed a song or two, but, you know, I would make it a point to go, and once a week, you at that point now, trying to find, trying to buy a new CD right. a week. You know, this is before I was buying vinyl. I don't think vinyl had, like, it's, it was still around, but it wasn't, like, the huge thing that I kind of think it is now. But, you know, buying a, geez, that, that distro would just say, you know, I would see a Hot Water Music logo. I have no idea what they sounded like. You know, I didn't even know the bands that they were referencing them to. But you know, I'd buy a what is it like Fuel for the Hate Game or whatever one of the first ones were. Yep, yep. But through them, you know, you discover the who I never, you know, admittedly I never got that in the Hot Water Music, which will sound like sacrilege to a lot of people. But it's okay. <laughs> but but the band like but it would say later on I would see like Alkaline Trio's first seven inch, you know, an Asian man. It would say for fans of Hot Water Music, I bought that one. And that band, you know, that early records changed a big part of my life at that time. So it's like it's like all the all these little doors that you walk into and show you other universes. And it's like it's on such a small microcosm. But at the same time, it obviously causes such a cultural impact and also an impact on all of our individual lives for being like going down these rat holes. Yeah, I don't I wish there was a way for us to like. I wish there was a way to thank more things, you know, that don't even exist anymore. But like, yeah. it's so important that these things existed. And uh, maybe that's why I still want to be involved so much just to keep it, you know, it's not like it's going to go anywhere if I'm not involved. But like, I just want to play my part of like, you know, I was having a discussion recently about like what these things meant with another friend of mine mm-hmm. who's way more into hardcore. But in the hardcore scene was always kind of satelliting kind of the the bigger umbrella of DIY culture. But, um, you know, it's just, it's such an important thing to kind of shaping who you are. And I, I think, uh, I think I'm, I feel lucky for kind of discovering it when I did. Yeah, no, I like, I like the way you put that as far as like, 
because I, I think you know all of us that have been involved for you know a prolonged period of time with this stuff. I think there's that sort of you know whatever you're doing, whether it's you know working at a label, playing in a band, like doing anything. It's that sort of like that feeling like you are you are creating your own little you know love letter <laughs> to that that yeah. stuff that preceded you. Where it's like, oh yeah, you're able to tell these stories and relate and still be excited about music, but have this wide tapestry of things that you can reference, you know? Yeah. I think it's very important to like know where, even if just kind of know where you came from, you know? And like, uh, I'm still doing that now. I'm still like watching, you know, discovering bands that sonically probably sound nothing like the bands that got me into everything, but for some, some way changed like the creation records documentary that I watched recently, like has really nothing to do with punk or ska, which kind of kicked this whole thing off for me, but just the, the groundwork that those bands and labels lay down to make it possible for other things to exist. And, you know, it's just sort of just doing, doing the homework, yeah. wanting, wanting to know, you know, wanting to do the homework is another thing. Right. Right. The uh, and, and so so once you went to that show, started stage diving, and like that was you were you were in. Um, did you? When did the band life start to come into your in, into picture? Pretty much immediately, but it was a very loose form of what a band is. Um, <laughs> so these were the older kids that were in that band, and they once they would take once after that show, I like begged them like take me to your next show, and I think it was, you know, maybe a few towns away, and it was with the Slackers, so I went to that show. And at that time, like, there was a big, like, oi skinhead presence going on in the area. And I was like, whoa, this is sketchy. Probably wasn't as sketchy as it seemed to me at 14 or 15. But right. But I was like, well, this is but it's cool just to see these bands. Because previously, I've only ever seen like Aerosmith, you know, with my mom would bring me with Collective Soul or the Spin Doctors were like my other shows that I saw. Sure. Not shows. They were concerts. Concerts. Yeah. You know. <laughs> But there was something amazing about these kids who are two or three years older than me and getting up on a stage and seeing people, you know, 150, 200 people react to them. And I was like, you know, to me, it was the same level as being Collective Soul opening for Aerosmith or whatever. I was like, who cares how many people? It's like, look how stoked they are. You know, like that's what was cool about it. So then I, you know, I had that guitar, couldn't play it, never took lessons, didn't know anything, barely knew what, how to put it in tune. But I had a friend who was a year younger than me who was like into the exploited and would, uh, you know, had a bunch of these punk rock compilations. And we would just sit in his bedroom and try to like learn songs or write songs. And I have no idea what they sounded like, but we had we were called the Impossibles. Oh, good. Before we knew that there was a band. called the Impossibles. <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we were like in our heads. We were going to be, as soon as we could find more people, like a nine-piece ska punk band, you know? <laughs> Dude, I love, the, I love the ambition already, where you're oh, just yeah. like... Yeah, <laughs> we, drew, we drew logos, you know, we, had, we drew, like, uh, what our album covers would look like while not having, like, more than 20 minutes or 20 uh, seconds of, like, an actual song, <laughs> let alone people to play. Right, right. Dude, so, it, it kind of sounds like what you do uh, with, with management now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's i'm just just making it up as we go along yeah you're just putting putting together ska bands that's all you really try to do try to put a nine piece nine piece band together i want to see how people can make as little money as possible <laughs> oh i know split it nine ways after you already split it with other people so so perfect it's it's a financial model that will never break you know, I, every time i see a ska band i'm just like i love what you're doing but Christ, there's got to be like, it's got to be tough when you're just starting out and there's $150 to go around. That's, that's amazing. So that, that did, did you actually get to a point where you could play a show as, as no, that? No. Okay. No, no, that was uh but that, but that basis, I eventually found people. And as like the year went on the year, you know, a couple months went on, we got more and more, you know, at that time your, your tastes are changing so fast because you're constantly discovering a new band. So immediately after 411 releases a video with the Promise Ring song, and now I want to sound like the Promise Ring. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, uh, you know, and then Saves a Day from New Jersey, obviously, kind of make an impact in 1997-ish. And now I want to sound like Saves a Day kind of thing. So um, 
I went to my first warp tour. I found a, there was a comp for a dollar that was drive through, had song bands on it, crank had songs on it, like doghouse. Mm-hmm. It was a double CD that came in a plastic bag. Okay. Like this this is what I remember from the nineteen ninety seven warp tour. <laughs> aside from like seeing Snapcase and I was like, This is awesome. Right. But uh I got this comp and mineral was on it. So like constantly, so many different genres are under the like I'm like, what the hell? This is all considered like the same umbrella of like punk rock or whatever, whatever it is. Right. So I'm just like, this is the most amazing thing in the world that you can sound like mineral and maybe propagandi and maybe, you know, against all authority. Somehow it's all the same thing and you could play whatever you want. Right. There's a, there's a charming element to that because, you know, I think with obviously youth comes the idea that like, because you're putting so much new inside of you that, you know, you've got no expectations. You have no, you're carrying no baggage. You're not like, Oh, I heard that band or a bunch of dicks or whatever. You're just, you're putting everything in your head. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's, and I always sort of gravitated towards more melodic kind of, um, softer music just Mm -hmm. as a Beatles fan, as a kid, I always like Paul McCartney's pop songs. And, you know, that's not to say I didn't like angry, you know, fast punk or anything or hardcore, but it was always just like something that I would listen to, to, you know, at a specific time. So eventually when I found bands that were a little more melancholy or, you know, were talking about something that resonated with a 16 year old at this time, you know, Chris Conley on, you know, can't slow down was a, you know, a year older than me, you know? Mm -hmm. So something starts to connect even on another level Aside from it just being something you think is cool and want to be a part of, well, now it's connecting to on a kind of emotional and, you know, a bit bigger. It's connecting much harder and deeper. Um, so then we, we started a band called Misled Youth. Good, good name, right? After the uh, Zero Skateboard video. Yeah, that's total. I was about to reference that. But yeah, mm-hmm. that's, 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 that's appropriate. I, I mean, did you, because uh, that, that sounds very uh, Liberty Spike punk rock, but I presume that wasn't yeah. the sound. Well, it was also the thing we had to deal with who was around to be in a band with. So we had a drummer who was a really nice guy who I still see all the time who, but was into like, uh, you know, hip hop and, but he just happened to have a drum kit and our bassist who was like Liberty spike punk rock kid, but he just played bass and knew some of the stuff. Me who was like on now the very beginnings of like what would become the biggest, you know, era, which was probably like indie rock emo kid. Mm-hmm. Um, who just started to find that stuff. And then a singer who was into like just straight up Pennywise. So <laughs> what a <laughs> mo- motley crew of people. What a motley crew of a band. I'll tell you it was, but we would, we had one, like two original songs that were very like, you know, this thing it was very political, you know, who knows what it was like, but it was political punk. And then I got them to cover a promise ring song. And I think we covered a propaganda song. That's amazing. Like, or we covered like Mill and Colin, like Bullion or something that was very skate punk. Right, right. You're like, okay, this is, I think this is our common ground. We can agree on this. <laughs> yeah, we all, so we all got like a little, it was very democratic. We all got a little part of us in it, but we played like, I think one house party. And then, um, then I finally met Ace and that kind of changed a lot. So, right. That put your trajectory, uh, to the, yeah, the, obviously what you've been doing for a long time. Did you, yeah. uh, did you have a sense of like who you wanted to become as far as like, you know, hey, I want to do this for a job or was it basically just like, oh, I'm going to ride this music thing out as long as I can as far as you progressing through high school and college and that sort of stuff? I think I had – I didn't know how you could make money doing it. But I know that I would go – at that point, you know, I was starting the drive. I was going to shows every single weekend if possible. You know, if there was a good one, I'm going to it whether it's a grind show or if it's an indie rock show in a house, you know, I was going to everything just to, because that's where people I wanted to be around were hanging out. I was joining every street team I could. I was starting a, you know, a fanzine or a, a webzine with a friend of mine. So I knew you could somehow get paid to do it, but I didn't think, I, I just assumed that these guys would go on tour and then they would go and work at a record store. And I thought that was the coolest life in the world. You know, I was like, this is what it must be to be in high fidelity. Like you work at a cool record store and then your cool boss lets you take off and you go and play the, you know, if you were huge, you would play the rotunda. And that was huge to me. Mm-hmm. But if you were like, just, you know, kind of growing, you'd play the local VFW hall and you'd have, hopefully you'd have my band open, you know? So 
That was the dream. That's, that was the dream. That was a dream. I remember when early November opened for Branston. I was like, this is it. This is as <laughs> big as you get. Like Branston are huge. Right. And this is all you need. And like, we're on our way. And I remember wanting to sign to Deep Elm more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know so good like, i don't want to you know i don't have any intention of like saying that would have been a mistake or anything but like at the time like that was the coolest label to me that and like saddle creek and like these are the coolest things in the world and i branson probably never made anything significant money wise no no yeah <laughs> but i i you know? i you, you're you it's funny because you strike me as a very uh you know focused and driven person um it's just so it's so great to hear those those goals like because obviously looking back they're so small and minuscule but that was your mentality because you didn't have this scope of like oh dude i can't wait to be on capital record what no capital records why is that even a goal deep elm is the goal yeah i think this was before anybody had any like aside from blink 182 and aside from maybe less than Jake having some success, I don't think anybody really uh, – obviously Green Day and Offspring, sure, but like those were out of the picture. Those were now radio mainstream bands. I probably turned my back on them anyway. Right. But like people were starting to – you know, there wasn't a real, a real success story that I could connect to just yet. But it was right around the corner really with, with kind of the, the starting line, which was we played – before the early November was the early November, we played many shows with before they were the starting line. They were called Sunday Drive, who mm-hmm. we then named a song after. Um, and these and they were they got signed. They went to Newfound Glory. They were in you know we saw them on TV, and that was like that was the real like connecting thing there. That were like oh wow, you don't have to sign to Deep Elm, and you can get on TV mm-hmm. with this. Like R- it was all about to happen again. Right, right, right. <laughs> And so, uh, so then, as so you you were called something else before early November. Well, it was it was an incarnation of the early November. We were again that bass player who was into the exploited, mm-hmm. um, and a real quick kind of way I found this guy is we I was that bass player and I had a lunch period, and Ace and his friend Jim had a lunch period, and I just saw a dude wearing a Fat Records T-shirt. Like, it was wearing a Lagwagon shirt, but I saw the Fat Records logo on the back, mm-hmm. and I said, we have to go sit next to those dudes right now. So we went up, and we're just like, hey, do you guys listen to punk? And they said, oh, the dude Jim said, yeah. And I said, let's start a band. So we started a band. Ace was in time, like nothing but Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots at the time, but we were like, here is your homework. Listen to the Alkaline Trio, Weston, Promise Ring, Get Up Kids. And like, boom, he was in like a day, you know, it seemed like a day later, but like that changed everything for him. And he's like, okay, he happened to play guitar. So that worked out. And he's like a much better player than all of us. So we're like, great. He can actually write the songs or at least, you know, tell us what to do or help write the songs. (laughs) Right. And we would like kind of create and shape his uh, taste. And uh, it worked. That's what you do. You just like bleed off of one another and when you're when you're open to it and you're just like oh man this is great keep giving me more and you're like yeah we will because you're the one that's going to actually execute something musically <laughs> yeah it's and it's like i talked to forrest once when i first joined hello goodbye uh-huh. and he was telling me about like yeah i went to school with so and so from bleeding through and so and so from thrice or so you know yeah. and all these people were like around him and i'm like that's nuts. Like I had to create, like not to sound cool, but like we had to create somebody. <laughs> you know? like, yeah, you, we had so little to choose from that we had to like. You shoehorned yeah. people into it. Yeah, we had to, we, we, we were picking up anything we can and just hoping that we would find some common ground. And it's like maybe like the overwhelming uh, options leads to competition and there's so many bands, but. Right. We were there was one, and it was us in our high school at that time. <laughs> you didn't, you didn't, yeah, you didn't feel that uh, that crushing competition of like, oh man, who's going to get these shows? It's like, well, we'll we'll probably get it. Like we have a chance yeah. to play this show. <laughs> well, we had to go outside of our town, which would is which is in the area I live in now, which seemed like it was a million miles away, but it's actually only about a twenty five minute, thirty minute drive. <laughs> right. But um, yeah, so we would just. This is where that scene was alive and well because there's just more people. There's more high schools. There's more – it was closer to Philadelphia. So Right. There's um, more, more to pull from. Yeah. So we would come up here and play backyard shows with 
bands like Don't Look Down and the starting line before they were those bands. And right, right. It, you know, it, it's it's sort of a you built you built it from there. Once you guys started to you know uh, get your feet wet and playing shows, as far as like the early November and all that stuff was concerned. When did it for you obviously start to get at a level where you were just like, wow, like this is weird. Like either either from the smallest thing of obviously signing to drive through and you know doing. A, a label on the west coast being interested in a band on the east coast um or, you know at, at what point did you feel like uh i wouldn't even say overwhelmed but uh you, you just couldn't you couldn't believe that these certain things were happening probably t- like right around then in 2002 when we signed but we kind of we signed our drummer this is a different drummer now this is jeff we're talking like the current lineup of the own november so we're talking about Jeff, who was 17 years old and didn't graduate high school yet, but we had signed the drive-through that kind of that maybe April mm-hmm. of 2002. So we signed to the label, and um, they're like, "Okay, you're going to be on Warp Tour this summer," because uh, they had their own stage. Right, right. Remember, remember that that year? I do. So they had their own stage, um, which was like Finch and the Starting Line and something corporate, like a ridiculous stage. Right. It was massive. They're like, "Well, you're going to be on Warp Tour this summer." We're like wow like that's nuts but right. it was all so like surreal that we thought like they're just gonna it's gonna be easier it's gonna go they're gonna play our songs we didn't have any idea the amount of work that it took to be in a band we had never played out of state even we only played new jersey at that time uh-huh. we did no touring we played under 10 shows as a band we had no we didn't we had we printed our own t-shirts we we didn't know like any anything to do because there was nobody as a reference. There was a starting line, but we didn't know them that well. Right there but, was no, there was no structure for you. See, I didn't know I didn't know that you guys were that green. So your your first national tour was the Warp Tour. Mm-hmm, yep, that's but it. Went horribly wrong. Right, <laughs> horribly wrong. Right. Um. So we Jeff graduates. He gives his cap and gown to his mom. And this is like, this sounds like the, like the coolest made up story, but it's not like he gives his cap and gown to his mom. We already have his bag packed. We have the van, which was a starting line's old van that they gave to us because the starting line was now on a bus. <laughs> so they gave us their old van and they said, here you go. You're going to start in Tempe, Arizona. You live in New Jersey. We had to delay it by a whole day because his mom wanted him to walk on the, on the field, grabs his cap and gown gets in the van we start leaving that night we we like two or three days later we get there and we play our first show on the warp tour and we're like holy shit this is hot (laughs) like (laughs) this is insane like the drive we didn't have any idea of the actual length of the country (laughs) and how big it is (laughs) like yeah like we knew it was gonna like we had a printed out we had an atlas and some map map quest directions printed out and that was it like no self like i think i don't think we had any self we had calling cards right like no cell phone, no GPS, nothing. Like no money, just just <laughs> just, going. just piecing it together. I love. It's also so interesting too because I'm trying to think of a label that you could equate to the level that Drive Through was at, as far as like a mainstream perspective. Because there, to me, there isn't at this like at the, like you know in at this juncture in music, there's no label. There's labels that are cool and obviously have a distinct vibe, but not to the point of where you're plugging in a stage at Warp Tour and you're just massive, like yeah. s- immediate it, attention. Thinking about it in like today's terms, it's like, that's huge. There, it, that stage was outdrawing a lot of the main stages. Totally, that year. totally. Like, and I guess maybe because they were just partners with uh, MCA at the time and there was just a lot of money to go around, but like there's also a lot of records to be sold. I, I don't know how many records uh, Finch sold on What It Is The Burn, but this was like, the height of that right that time for for that band and, um, and for you guys for you guys to literally plug and play of like okay like here here it is is like i can't even i'm I'm surprised you guys got through it <laughs> like that's hard we didn't, we didn't at all we didn't we we flipped our van two weeks or a week in oh wow i didn't i, I think i vaguely remember that news story yeah. but wow well, this is here's where this is going to become the most ridiculous like I remember meeting Bob Nana when we went on tour with Hey Mercedes and he was telling us a story and we're like, wait a minute. He, oh, he walks up and he's like, I, we, before we took this tour, we heard a story about you guys. It can't be true. And he, and he told me the story I'm about to tell you. And I'm like, no, that's, that's all true. <laughs> <laughs> this is the worst thing. So, you know, we're on Tempe, right? We play 
I, I would love to go back and look at the routing. I can't believe I never have, but like just to see where we were. But it starts in Arizona. We play a couple, literally a couple shows. And on the way between Salt Lake to, I want to say Vegas, there we were passing through a town. There was a huge dust storm in Salt Lake. Huge. And like we, we ran inside the Atticus tent because all the tents were flipping over. And we're like, ooh, that was creepy. Right. Like poles are coming out. You know, there's pop-up tent poles and you're like oh that almost hit me like sketchy you know and then we get in the van later that night we brought a guy along with us named i won't name him but we brought a guy with us um who was a friend from town who just was yeah i'll help you guys i'll help you carry your gear and and sell merch which we didn't even have a table we just walked around the the war tour and hey want a t-shirt right you know and uh you know, and he was like, I'll, I'll help drive one because you guys are going to be, you know, out, out, out like all day long just trying to meet people. Um, but he was also so into Finch and Glassjaw that he would never sleep. So he's just like going off. And we're like, hey, man, you should definitely – at least we had like the foresight to know. Like, well, not foresight, but we said, you know, Steve, you should be sleeping. You know, you should – he's like, no, I'm fine. I'm just going to drink a ton of Red Bull and we're going to drive right through it. Yeah. But I don't think we understood like what a seven-hour overnight drive on Warp Tour actually is for a band – that has nowhere to go all day except for a hot van. Mm-hmm. This is why I don't care who it is. I will never put one of my bands on Warp Tour in just a van. I don't care. Yeah, like I won't do it. Just you know, you know it. Yeah, from experience. Yeah. So they will. Um. So that overnight drive. It's a long one. All the drives out there long, and um. You know, we're cruising down the road, and the Starlines van. They took out all their bench seats and couldn't find them when it went when it was time to give us the van. So we just had loose thrift store couches. Oh my God. Sitting in this van. No trailer because we were sharing backline, but like, you know, a couple of guitars and like two boxes of merch and then our personal belongings. Oh, I, we wake up to our drummer, Jeff, who was in the passenger seat saying, Steve, wake up. Or I just, I just named him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, this story has been around a million times. Steve, yeah. wake up. To then Steve waking up and like freaking out and ripping that, that wheel so hard to the right that the, the, tra- uh, the van just starts spinning in the street. Uh, and flips off the right side of the road into a dirt ditch into the middle of the desert, and it flips one and a half times and lands on its side. And just everything fucked up everywhere. Like, there's stuff everywhere. No one was hurt, except for I was a little hurt. Something landed right on my neck. Mm-hmm. So we all crawl out of the of the driver's side window, which is the only thing we can get out of, and just, I remember getting up there, getting on top of the van, in the middle of the night, probably like, and just immediately like my body seizing up and being like this. Oh, I think I'm, I'm thinking I'm paralyzed. Yeah. Like something like got pinched and my adrenaline like made it okay until like I calmed down and then I couldn't move right. like easily. Um, buses are flying right by us, you know, from the tour. We're trying to flag people down. No one's stopping. Ambulance comes, police come. I spend the night in the emergency room, just doing x-rays and whatnot. They gave me a neck brace. And then we spend the weirdest day of our lives in Fallon, Nevada, which is where they test a lot of nuclear bombs, which mm-hmm. is what I learned later, just kind of sitting in a hotel room, waiting the call drive through and just being like, okay, well, we're going home because we're, they're going to drop us because we're idiots. And we flipped our van and we got to call our parents and say, don't worry, we're not dead, but everything's so, ruined, you know? Right. And I just I'll, also a very vivid memory, just sitting in this sketchy, weird hotel that's not a chain. It was just a weird Bates Motel kind of thing. And just, you know, being questioning whether or not you're even alive. You're like, did, did something happen? Like, is this hell? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, do you, you, it's, it's that total gut check moment of like, I made a horrible mistake. This was yeah. an awful idea. It was rough. And then um, drive through is like, no, no, you, you don't have to go home. Why don't you, we fly you out to California and like you just stay with us and like, you know, we, you know, you can kind of just relax for a little bit. And like they, it was a really nice gesture. They were like, you can come out here and just kind of live at the house and right. we'll take you on a boat and you can be in the new homegrown video, which we were. <laughs> <laughs> and like you can just hang out and like get to meet us because they haven't even met us at that point. Well, aside from one meeting, right. but we were getting our way out there and um, we're like, OK, that sounds cool. So we fly to where they lived and um, spent. A week with them, you know, just going to the local warp tour dates and you know Ventura and and it was just it was it was all right. 
Yeah. Well, it, it, but, it, yeah, it got it got you back to the point of like, okay, like let's 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 reevaluate this. We got to do they, this smarter. They brought us to the Hollywood uh, Guitar Center and said, "Go ahead and pick out a new, new you know guitar each." And so we're just also now knowing. I know that we're this is all going into what we owe the label, but it, it was I would probably have to do the same thing today because of we're kids. We had no money. So they did a very nice thing by just saying, okay, you wrecked the van. Cool. That's 20 grand. You wrecked all your gear. That's another five grand. Well, now we'll go spend another five grand to buy you new gear. So like out of the gate, we're 35 grand or so in the hole. Right, right, right. Before, before releasing a single song, two weeks later, we fly back out to New Jersey. We rent a van that they set up for us. And we're going to go, we're driving down to Atlanta to start back up with the tour. Um, we get into a parking lot and there's a, an attendant there who says, Hey, uh, you have to, you know, you have to leave the keys with us because we, um, we have, we might have to move it. And that's what they do in Philadelphia. So we said, okay, here you go. How much do we owe you? He's like, yeah, you know, 10 50 or whatever. Give him the money. We go on our way to find a strip club because you know, we're dudes on the road for the first time we're living. Right. Let's go try it. He tells us that one's like a couple blocks away. We end up walking like three miles. We find it. We realize it's like a gentleman's club, like a very nice 21 up limousines outside. It's like two miles away or so. And I turn to Ace and I say, that dude stole our van. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, no. We walk. He's like, yep. His 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 current wife, not currently had many, but like his his girlfriend, who is now his wife, was there. And she was like, let's do it. It'll be fun. Let's go at the, to the strip club and see what it's like to be on the road. He's like, yeah. He's like, he definitely stole our van. He's like, but don't say anything yet because I don't want to freak anybody out. Let's just make sure we know. Right. We get back. Van's gone. <laughs> oh. we, see a, we see a big sign that says, no attendant on duty, pay here, pointing down to a machine that we completely ignored. Dude, two vans. <laughs> two vans in the span of three weeks. <laughs> and luckily, we took out our personal belongings and gear and put it in the hotel, which is where we were staying uh, to meet up at Warp Tour. Yeah. His wife, his girlfriend starts crying. Ace and I just start laughing because we're like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> right. We call up drive through. They're like, you're the dumbest idiots on the planet. You're going to go tomorrow. Two of you are going to be with RX Bandits. Two of you are going to be with Finch. And you're going to finish out this tour. <laughs> so I, can't even, I seriously cannot believe that they had patience. At that point, if I was on the other end, I would just be like, you know what? It's just not going to work out. Yeah. <laughs> Not worth it. I, I would do that now. If there was, if I was managing a band now and they're like, Hey man, sorry, this happened again. I'd be like, yo, what's wrong with you? <laughs> this is nuts. Um, so we play one more show in Atlanta. We show up with our gear, with our little bags. And, uh, both bands are like, you're not coming on our bus. <laughs> this wasn't cleared with us. Sorry. You have to go home. And we're like, Oh man. <laughs> and then we went home and that was how you play all of five days on <laughs> 2002 war tour and end up 50 grand now in debt or whatever yeah barely barely survive the entire scenario that well that that is a very humbling experience (laughs) yeah that was uh so that's how that's how we started yeah that's it and uh trial trial by fire so basically it's like obviously at that point you have like nothing else could really go wrong like you've experienced pretty much the worst of the worst and so anything that you was thrown at you after that was you probably could obviously take with a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah. We, you know, we, um, we always had sort of bad luck and I know a lot of bands say that, but like, and also it was just being ignorant and stupid and like not really knowing how the world worked. Cause we were sheltered farm kids who really didn't know how anything yeah, did anything. So I, I want to, you know, point some of the, the blame there, but like, Hey, what yeah. are you going to do? No, no, <laughs> for happens. sure. For sure. Um, and, and for and for sake of time, because I, I think we could probably potentially make this like a, a, a two part podcast, which we which we, we probably will at some point. But um, the uh, the last thing I want to hit on was something that you uh, you you've said in a few interviews that, uh, you know, really resonated with me. And I think it's it's such an important topic. And the, I, I'm sure you learn this later in life. But the fact that you, um, you know, obviously once, uh, you know, early November ended and you obviously played with Hello Goodbye for a while. But. You mentioned that giving yourself an opportunity to know yourself outside of the context of a band. I mean, even though you were playing with Hello Goodbye, but just like giving giving that time to obviously know yourself outside of what you've known. You know, yeah, you're Joe from early November. Like, that's what you are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it that's something that I think a lot of people don't 
um, you, you don't consider when you start a band because obviously that's you know that's not part of your agenda at that point. And so, like, was that was that a difficult process for you to like come to grips with like who you were outside of the context of the band? Yeah, I guess it was hard to relate to a lot of people because you missed a lot of like missed college, so you missed that whole meeting new people who are from different backgrounds and who are from different towns. Like all we knew before was a few towns around us and then bands and bands aren't normal people. They are, but like when they're on tour, you're like band friends and it's like a different lifestyle. Um, you never really had a chance to kind of live in like, I don't know, a normal person, but I hate using that term. Yeah. But, um, you know, it was um when we ended, we had a like, I think we all just wanted to not be a band and not because we didn't like each other or like being a band. We just wanted to see what the other side was all about and not being in a relationship for a month and then going back out on tour and just having talking on the phone and not really even being in a relationship, you know, whether it be a girlfriend or with friends, it's just like you're, you're part-time there and your, your, everything else is on the road. Right. And that's a, that's a weird thing. And then once it, it ends, it's even weirder to adjust because the jokes you use on the road don't fly with other people because being on the road is tour, being on the road is weird and people are weird and like dropping a bottle, bottle of water doesn't fly, you know, we're in the green room. It doesn't matter, you know, you someone else is cleaning that up and not that, like we trash places, but like there's just a different way of living that you don't consider when you're on the road eight nine, 10 months out of the year, as much as we were touring in those early days. So yeah, how to kind of figure out where, where you, know, where you kind of sat, not only with your home life, but obviously with yourself of just, just that whole identity piece of your life. Yeah. It was tricky. You know, it's something that like, I feel I've got a pretty good grasp on now. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the band stuff is, is less of a part of my life now. It's, it's a huge part of like my heart and everything and where I came from, but like, we just don't do it as much anymore. Right. And I just try to like, uh, you know, from all the mistakes we made and what we learned, I try to pass those on sure. to other people. But it was um, it was a wild time, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know whether it was like my own, um, uh, my own perception of like when you know, like when I played in bands, it was one of those things where it's like <clears throat> I really tried to uh, focus on the fact that okay, like clearly what I am doing, and I wasn't this mature as far as being able to express it. But just the idea that like, okay, if a person doesn't like my band, it doesn't necessarily mean they don't like me. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a hard, that's a hard lesson to learn when you're younger, because you know, everything you do is 140%. And it's like, and then, and then the idea of like, well, you know, I, I am this person outside of the context of my band. Like there are layers to me as a person as opposed to like you you know like you mentioned where it's like you're just known for this one thing and what what do you do after that yeah I mean, every any, anybody in our in, a, in an artistic endeavor goes through that sort of identity crisis when the thing that they've known for years doesn't exist anymore and like where where do you sit with that you know yeah and it's it was weird to kind of have a regular desk job and have somebody a guy would sit next to me and he'd tell me about how well his son's band was doing and I knew who that band was and I knew that they weren't doing well. And I knew that they were just kind of in L.A. trying to like, you know, playing the Viper and like doing all this stuff like right. that wasn't like real and not wanting to be like, I just, you know, we just got back from Japan, bro. Or we just sold out, you know, whatever venue, you know, but it just ended and I didn't want to sound like a washed up jaded kid already. But like, yeah, it's just like a weird thing that you have to like step back from and be like, you know what, to the most of the world, you're not a guy from a band because that band wasn't that big, you know, but in your little microcosm, like your band may have been kind of big and that was a big part of it. And now you got to figure out how to meet these two worlds in the middle and right. figure yes. out how to get along with everybody. I think you, you, you said it perfectly when it's like, you can, you can cite the, even the largest bands within the independent culture yeah whatever green day blink like clearly those names are obviously known like if you talk to you know a, a parent they will have at least heard of that name but still even if you if you drill just even one level lower those are lost like no one knows who those bands are even though they're massive into yeah. you know a day to remember people don't know that that's not mainstream you know, even though yeah. even though they're gigantic and can play in front of ten thousand people a night, you have to make sure that that sort of you know 
spirit is in check so you don't you know you don't become uh that person who yeah like you said that that washed up guy at you know 26 years old where it's like oh i remember that it's like oh really (laughs) yeah it's you know i sat next to a guy another guy who was in like a hair metal band who got signed in like 90 Mm -hmm. 91 or something like right before nirvana killed it and he would just be like yeah we were on cbs records man we were about to tour with bon jovi and then nirvana and i'm like bummer you know yeah yeah. (laughs) Uh, i don't want to i don't want to be that guy you know at all you know thinking i think just objectively about everything and realizing that it's it's an awesome thing and you're super grateful but it's also not as big of a deal to other people yeah and you can't act like it is like my mom doesn't even know who like vampire weekend would be you know they're a big band you know (laughs) so it's just like yeah the the, the parents are a good barometer that's definitely uh that's that's definitely a test if you think a band is big just ask your parents they'll probably not know yeah (laughs) well that is that is a perfect lesson to end on joe i really appreciate your time dude thank you man i I had a good time i'm glad we got a chance to do this so that was joe nice to get to know him a little bit even more and aren't those stories insane it just goes to show like for those people that don't have drive-through records in a context like that is how big of a label that they were where it's just like the massive power and influence that they had on Warp Tour and just the music scene in general was just, you know, it just it just reminded me. It affirmed my knowledge hearing Joe's stories. Great stories nonetheless, and thank you, Joe, for hanging out. The editor, and you know what? I'm going to start calling him producer. He's a producer because he contributes creative juices to this show that I might not have thought of in the first place. So the producer of this show is Tom Richfield. And uh, visit 100wordspodcast.com. Visit propertyofzack.com. And uh, for those of you that actually listen to this, I always like to tease. We've got some hot news of upcoming guests. Next week is Matt Miller. He's a professional photographer, and he also played in bands like Most Precious Blood and a bunch of other stuff. But he's just, he's hands down my favorite photographer in circulation currently. He just does such great work. And then after that is Dave Rellin from Botch the singer of Botch and also the current singer of Narrows. And then, um, you know, in no particular order, there's uh, some other people. There might be a a person who sings for a band called uh, Tiger Something. And there may be a person that plays in a band called uh, The Locust or Retox. You know, just throwing out some hints. So anyways, just great chats coming up. So please subscribe to the show, follow along. It's free. You pretty much can't say no to that. And the two-year anniversary, 104th episode. Oh, so excited to share that stuff with you. Anyways, until next week, be safe, everybody. Be safe.